Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello and welcome to the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. What do we mean when we talk about labor history in Britain? And who do we mean when we talk about the British working class? Two years ago, a group of scholars, most but not all of them historians, set out to explore precisely those questions. What prompted them most immediately was the fallout from the 2016 Brexit vote. In the political debates that followed, a set of truisms quickly emerged about ordinary working-class Britons, associating them with long traditions of social conservatism, hostility to immigrants, and support for a right-wing government. Over a series of meetings and workshops, these historians set out to contest those assumptions. Now, in the week marking International Workers' Day, and one year on from the start of the wave of industrial action that touched workers across the United Kingdom, we're launching the first in a series of three podcast episodes, Rethinking the History of the British Working Class. We begin with an exploration of labor and race. Propelling the vision of the ordinary working class as inherently suspicious of immigration and globalization is an assumption that it is homogenous, white, and British-born. Today's episode tells three stories that contest and complicate that assumption. Ryan Hanley is an historian of race and slavery in modern Britain, teaching at the University of Exeter. Caroline Bressy trained as a geographer and teaches at University College London, where she focuses on the historical and cultural geographies of the Black presence in Britain. Somak Biswas is based at the University of Warwick, where he's an historian of race, sexuality, and migration, focused on Britain and South Asia. Each of them excavates a forgotten moment in British history that spotlights the intertwined histories of labor and race. Together, they tell a set of stories that make for a more complex labor history narrative, perhaps even a narrative more conducive to hope. We start in the second half of the 18th century with the life of Robert Wedderburn, the son of an enslaved woman raised on the island of Jamaica, who as an anti-slavery activist in Britain would articulate a remarkably radical and expansive critique of all forms of exploitative labor. Ryan Hanley picks up his story here and in the two segments that follow, the archival extracts are read by the actor Bert Caesar. I first encountered Robert Wedderburn as a PhD student researching black intellectuals in early 19th century Britain. Like most history students in the UK, my explorations in black British history had begun with the formerly enslaved abolitionist Olauda Equiano and his 1789 autobiography, The Interesting Narrative. I had taken it for granted that all black intellectuals during this period were, like Equiano, heavily invested in the notion of respectability. I had assumed that black political thinkers were all keen to be taken seriously by a certain set of metropolitan elite reader, the type who were obsessed with formality and politeness. I'd imagined all black British anti-slavery writing to share Equiano's self-consciousness over the stereotypes of African men as being violent or hot-headed. 
In short, I had expected to be writing a thesis about cautious activists. Imagine my surprise then when I learned about Wedderburn. Here was a man of colour in Regency London who was not only a central figure in the working class ultra-radical movement, not only the most strident and outspoken abolitionist of his generation, but an all-out insurrectionist, calling publicly for simultaneous armed uprisings of the enslaved in Jamaica and the downtrodden labouring poor in Britain. No white abolitionist had ever been so bold before. Wedderburn was a poor flint tailor and sometime denizen of London's streets and back alleys. He spent much of his life in and out of prison, not just for his political activism, but for his trenchant atheist and anti-clerical views, for petty theft, for vagrancy, for brawling in the streets, and later in life for keeping a brothel and selling pornography. He was also an intellectual and political writer of the First Order, who spoke with inspiring passion and a biting, distinctively working class kind of wit. His corpus of work proudly reflects not only his heritage as a man born into slavery and raised in poverty, but also a profound faith in solidarity between poor and marginalised people around the world. Wedderburn was not only uninterested in cultivating any air of establishment respectability, he delighted in rejecting it. From the beginning, Robert Wedderburn seemed destined for rebellion. Born into slavery in Jamaica in the early 1760s, he grew up in the aftermath of Tacky's War, one of the largest uprisings of enslaved people in Jamaica's history. His maternal grandmother, an African-born woman known in the markets of Kingston as Talkie Amy, was reputed to be a practitioner of Obia. Ever since Tacky's War, this practice was illegal in the colony since it was believed to inspire open and direct forms of rebellion. For their part, the white Scottish side of Wedderburn's family had come to Jamaica in exile following his paternal grandfather's participation in the Jacobite uprising of 1745. But by far Robert's biggest influence was his hot-tempered and rebellious mother, Rosanna, who worked as an enslaved domestic servant on the island. Rosanna had lived comparatively peacefully with a Scottish colonist named Basilia Douglas until around 1758, when Robert's father, the surgeon James Wedderburn, took a fancy to her and contrived to buy her, as Robert put it, for purposes of lust. James Wedderburn was still young and unmarried, and by buying her, he hoped to procure Rosanna's nominal sexual consent. Over the next several years, he tried to force her into some grotesque parody of a romantic relationship. He failed. Rosanna loathed her captor and never allowed him to think otherwise. Eventually, James forced himself on her. Like many children of enslaved mothers then, Robert was the product of rape. Yet, Rosanna was not cowed by the sexual violence she suffered at James Wedderburn's hands during these years. Living in his house, she made James's life as miserable as she possibly could. She berated and verbally abused him constantly, she fought with the other servants in the house. She repeatedly ran off. She spat in his food and she openly defied him in public wherever she could. In my forthcoming book, Robert Wedderburn, Atlantic Insurrectionary, I explore the possibility that Rosanna made life so horrible for James during these years that she was able to leverage freedom for the two sons who she bore in, one of whom was Robert. 
If James Wedderburn finally wanted to get rid of this troublesome woman, then this would be her price. After he had grown up and moved to London, Robert told his mother's story in a memoir called The Horrors of Slavery, which he published in 1824. What is immediately striking about his account of his mother's behaviour is his categorical refusal to make any apology for it. At a time when white abolitionists were keen to portray enslaved women as helpless, passive victims, Robert was more interested in celebrating his mother's righteous anger. My brother Colville asserts that my mother was of a violent and rebellious temper. I will leave the reader now to judge for himself whether she had not some reason for her conduct. Insulted on one hand and degraded on the other, was it likely that my poor mother could practice the Christian virtue of humility when her Christian master provoked her to wrath? She shortly afterwards became again pregnant, and I have not the least doubt but that from her rebellious and violent temper during that period, that I have inherited the same disposition. Whether it was in the womb, as he suggested, or as a toddler under her care, Robert absorbed a salutary lesson in the value of defiance and open disrespect for unjust authority from his mother. Wedderburn's political outlook developed alongside the upsurge in radicalism that followed the Napoleonic Wars. By 1814, he was a regular attendee at ultra-radical meetings, the sort of noisy, rambunctious events that took place in the smoky backrooms of pubs late at night. His earliest recorded appearance as a speaker was in August 1817, when he interrupted a lecture by the early socialist and philanthropist Robert Owen. When he climbed onto the table without shoes or stockings on, and started to shout down one of the other speakers. Attendees at this event reportedly worried that a madman had wandered in off the streets, but Wedderburn proved a thrillingly cogent and convincing speaker. I well understand slavery, he said on that night. My mother was a slave, and Mr Owen's plan for the poor, if enacted, would be but another system of slavery, though under a different name. This blending of the issues of transatlantic slavery and the rights of the poor quickly became Wedderburn's hallmark. In November that same year, he published an article in his new periodical, which blisteringly attacked the system of slavery at home and abroad, and sought to scare the wits out of slaveholders by invoking the memory of revolutionary Haiti, formerly known as Saint-Domingue. The island of Jamaica will be in the hands of the blacks within 20 years. Prepare for flight, ye planters, for the state of Santo Domingo awaits you. Remember the fermentation will be universal. Their weapons are their bill hooks. Their store provision is everywhere in abundance. You know they can live upon sugar canes and a vast variety of herbs and fruits. Yea, even upon the buds of trees, you cannot cut off their supplies. Oh, ye planters, you know this has been done. The cause which produced former bloodshed still remains. Of necessity, similar effects must take place. What makes Wedderburn's rhetoric particularly noteworthy is the explicit equivalence that he drew between issues of slavery and issues affecting free labour. 
unlike some of his more famous white radical contemporaries, such as William Cobbett or Richard Carlyle. Wedderburn's approach to addressing the injustices faced by the overwhelmingly white labouring classes in Britain was intimately entwined with his detestation of chattel slavery. That loathing was most clearly articulated in the blunt question Wedderburn proposed at a raucous debate in his tumble-down hayloft debating room in Soho, London, on the 16th of August, 1819. Can it be murder to kill a tyrant? Has a slave an inherent right to kill his master, who denies him his freedom? While the handbills advertising the event proudly proclaimed that the offspring of an African would open proceedings, it was clear to everyone present that the question related at least as much to the conditions of the working classes in Britain as it did to the enslaved in the West Indies. This was just a week before the infamous Peterloo massacre. Britain teetered on the precipice of a popular revolution. The rhetoric of slavery was a powerful galvanising force in the spread of domestic radical ideas all around the country at this time, and to invoke the possibility of slaves of any complexion rising up to overthrow their tyrannical masters was to invoke the spectre of a revolution. The Home Office, of course, were very concerned about this type of rhetoric spreading, and they sent spies along to the radical meetings like this to keep an eye on what was really being said. I proceeded to Hopkins Street Chapel to hear the question discussed whether it be right for the people of England to assassinate their rulers, wrote the obsequious Chetwode Eustace in a letter to the Home Secretary. For this, my lord, I conceive to be the real purport of the question, though proposed in other terms. Another spy present at the meeting, J. Bryant, noted how Wedderburn identified the corruption at the heart of the British establishment, claiming that both the slave trade and the exploitation of white workers was part of the same rotten system. Government was necessitated to send men in arms to West Indies or Africa, which produced commotion. They would employ blacks to go and steal females. This was done by parliament men who done it for gain, the same as they employed you in their cotton factories to make slaves of you. Wedderburn made his case well. When the sense of the meeting was taken, almost all the crowd voted in favour of his proposal, with several members of the audience proclaiming themselves ready to go to the West Indies and assist the enslaved in gaining their liberty by force. Wedderburn, satisfied, leaned back in his chair and exclaimed, I can now write home to tell the slaves to murder their masters as soon as they please. Perhaps unsurprisingly, this type of rhetoric eventually landed him back in prison, this time for two years on a charge of seditious blasphemy. Peter Lew had given the Home Office the pretext it needed to crack down on radical agitation of all stripes, and insurrectionaries like Wedderburn were at the top of their list. In prison, Wedderburn was singled out for especially harsh punishment. His fellow inmate and London radical Richard Carlyle reported that he was kept in solitary confinement for months with no fire and barely enough food. A visit from the ageing abolitionist and arch-conservative William Wilberforce in 1821 seems to have been intended to get him to focus his energies on the anti-slavery movement and to stay away from domestic politics. Perhaps Wilberforce didn't need to bother. Wedderburn emerged from jail in 1822 into a political landscape that was rapidly changing. British Labour radicals did things differently now, coalescing into more respectable reform movements, 
with more modest aims focused on improving factory conditions, reducing working hours and extending the franchise. Wedderburn, by now, was an old man, and his vision of overthrowing tyrants by force on both sides of the Atlantic, leading an uprising in solidarity with the enslaved, looked overly idealistic, unattainable, quaint even. It is notable that when he published The Horrors of Slavery in 1824, he'd had to print and distribute it himself, rather than through the established London radical networks of which he'd been a part. Wedderburn hit harder times than usual in the late 1820s and took to letting out rooms to destitute women, perhaps a euphemism for running a bawdy house to make ends meet. This was exactly the kind of behaviour that the new generation of British radicals wanted to distance themselves from. In 1828, he tried to open up a new debating club in White's Alley to discuss outrageous anti-religious and politically radical topics, but attendance was poor to begin with and soon dwindled to nothing. He did continue publishing and taking part in the reform movement, but Wedderburn was never again at the centre of British radical politics. When he died in December 1834 or January 1835, there were no notices in any of the radical periodicals or mainstream newspapers. Wedderburn's brief leadership in the ultra-radical movement of the late 1810s lets us glimpse a fleeting moment when British working-class solidarity effortlessly crossed boundaries of race and nation. His written output and speeches from this period hint at a recognition of how the emergence of globalised racial capitalism ensnared and exploited people who looked very different from one another, and how these labourers might resist these processes and even imagine victory one day. Wedderburn saw his status as a black man and a survivor of the slavery system as a unique call to action on behalf of his oppressed countrymen in both Britain and Jamaica. As he put it, I am a West Indian, a lover of liberty, and would dishonor human nature if I did not now show myself a friend to the liberty of others. By the late 19th century, with the official abolition of slavery across the British Empire, questions of race in the British labor movement seemed to recede to the margins. One exception was found in the pages of Anti-Caste, perhaps Britain's first anti-racist periodical. Established in 1888, Anti-Caste covered issues of racial prejudice, labor inequality, and white supremacy in India, Australia and the Pacific regions, the United States, and Africa. And though its founder, Catherine Impey, was a white middle-class Quaker from Somerset, it was edited for several years by Celestine Edwards, a working-class journalist from the Caribbean. The historical geographer Caroline Bressy takes up the story of his life. Celestine Edwards is one of so many Black individuals whose activist work undertaken as part of their everyday lives has been forgotten. With Edwards, perhaps this is because his radical anti-racism and anti-imperialism within a framework of working class politics and religion did not find a broader political home in Britain in the late 19th century. Reports suggest Edwards was charismatic enough to have brought such a movement into being, but he died young and did not have the chance. I first read about Celestine Edwards in Peter Fryer's Staying Power, where he frames Edwards as what he calls a long forgotten forerunner of Pan-Africanism. 
But when I initially started my research on Black Victorians, I was particularly interested in the stories of Black women who lived in Britain during the late 19th century. For theirs were stories which were marginalised, even in the pages of the few scholars working on Black history at the time, which was the late 90s and early 2000s. But as part of that research, I read the works of the African-American civil rights activist and feminist Ida B. Wells. She came to Britain on two tours in the 1890s, advocating for the rights of African-Americans and particularly against the violence of lynchings. She was invited by a radical anti-racist collective of which Celestine Edwards was a part. And her memories of that time framed Edwards in a way new for me. She presented him as a person who could draw vast crowds to listen to difficult issues about international problems, such as the racist lynchings happening in the United States, and that he did this all across the country. So for me, Wells and Edwards and their collaborator, Catherine Impey, represented an important and unusual story, a story of intercultural and international solidarities, a story of working people involved in radical anti-racist activism, and a story of radical activism that took place across Britain, in the industrial towns and cities we might expect, like Newcastle and Manchester, but also rural market towns in the West Country and towns in Northern Scotland. And it is a story that tells us something of the possibilities of solidarities, but also offers a moment to reflect on why the anti-racist ideas that did not become a core part of the labour movement that emerged in Britain in the 20th century. Born in 1858 or 1859, Edwards wasn't sure. Edwards was the youngest child of a poor French-speaking parents. What we know of his early life now comes largely from extended obituaries published by his friends and colleagues after his death in 1894. They wrote he was born in Dominica, part of a large family, but orphaned at a young age. His father, born enslaved, died when he was a child. His mother in 1869, when he was 11. Edward's early life was spent working aboard ships. In the 1870s, he settled for a time in San Francisco, where he worked in a hotel and found friendships among a motley crew of gold diggers and miners. It was a wild life, and for a while it suited him, until he was nearly shot during a fight, at which point it was time to move on. He hoped to return to the Caribbean to see his family, but that proved impossible to arrange. And instead, he found himself in Britain, moving over the course of a decade from Edinburgh to Sunderland to Newcastle, working for a time as a builder, a lecturer and an insurance agent, until by 1891, he was a medical student living in Hackney in London. How Edwards moved from ship's crew to orator to an activist is unclear. It was while living in Edinburgh that he crafted his skills as a speaker, lecturing on behalf of the temperance movement around the city and across Scotland. The temperance movement offered Catherine Impey an opportunity to learn the skills of public speaking, report writing and campaigning, and it perhaps similarly supported Edwards. 
By the time he moved to London, certainly he was a popular speaker for the movement. And newspapers from the time report that he had great skills of oratory and a deep understanding of religious scriptures, enabling him to explain complex ideas to eager audiences. Thousands of people crammed into halls to hear him speak on religious subjects. But his temperance activism intersected with a wider political and cultural world. He also lectured on the implication of Darwin's theories of evolution for people of the African diaspora and on working class economics. In August 1893, Edwards addressed a trade union march in Portsmouth. Among the 3000 demonstrators there were members of the Boilermakers Society, the General Labourers Amalgamated Union, bricklayers, joiners, dockers, railway workers and insurance agents. And here Edwards proposed a motion for the meeting to push for the improved conditions of workers and the placement of labour representatives on all local governing bodies. And he added that once they had settled their differences, workers could then conduct a peaceful war against the capitalists. On one occasion, so many people waited to hear him speak that part of the lobby floor of the entrance to the hall gave way and about 50 people crashed down into the cellar below. The list of the injured included Eliza Lashley, the daughter of police constable, and Emily Taylor, who worked as a dressmaker's apprentice. And those names give us rare insight into the kind of people that heard him speak. But Edwards was also probably Britain's first black newspaper editor when he took the helm as the editor of Lux, a weekly Christian evidence journal in August 1892. Published weekly and priced at one penny, the paper published columns by men and women writers with the main aim of countering the influence of secular papers being read by the working classes at the time. But this did not prevent Edwards criticising religious institutions. Edwards' practice of referring to missionaries as salaried officers of the state certainly irked some of his readers. But within a month, the paper had a circulation of 15,000 copies being sold by agents in Cardiff and Belfast and across England. And at the same time, Edwards had become part of the networks of the anti-racist community, which formed around the journal Anticast. Anticast covered issues on racial prejudice, labour inequality and white supremacy in India, Australia and the Pacific regions, the United States and Africa. Founded by Catherine Impey in 1888, she passed the editorship to Edwards in 1893, and under him the paper was renamed Fraternity, but it kept its international focus, as Edwards outlined in an editorial. In America we shall oppose lynching because it is inhuman, and the spirit which promotes it is diabolical. In Australia we must remind the colonists that Chinamen are their brethren. In this country, in every sphere, no one should be refused any opportunity in life on the ground of his nationality. Nay, not only in this, but in all countries. Russian Stundists are suffering as badly as the Negroes and cries come from other parts of the earth for sympathy, which they think we can give. How happy our brethren will be when they know that this society is endeavoring to alleviate their woes, that their sorrow is ours, and that their joy will be ours. 
What is particularly interesting about anti-caste and fraternity is that it drew together criticisms of racial prejudice with imperial expansion. So articles drew links between the trafficking of Pacific Islanders to work on the sugar plantations of Queensland, Chinese labour in Australia and the treatment of so-called native workers in Africa. Reports focused on practices of racial inequality on every continent, but British colonial expansion in Africa particularly outraged Edwards. In 1892, he railed against British actions in Uganda over three pages of Lux, predicting a day when the injustices would come home to haunt the oppressor's children's children. If the British nation stole no more, they have stolen enough and have sufficient responsibility at home and abroad to occupy her maternal attention for the next hundred years. If the British nation has not murdered enough, no nation on God's earth has. With all the injustices Edwards exorated in the 1890s, none outraged him more than Cecil Rhodes and his activities in Southern Africa. This was not a man to be celebrated. Rose was a thief and a mass murderer. Cecil Rhodes and company coveted Matabililand, and little by little they goaded poor Lobengula into a row, called for the assistance of the British government, and got the press to poison the minds of the British public by depicting Lobengula and the Matabilis as the worst of savages, and then seized their country. Since the war has been conducted by the British government for the British people, we, in the name of justice and humanity, ask that the Matabilis be not handed over to the tender mercies of Cecil Rhodes and his Dutch Boer allies. Whatever injustice the Matabilis inflicted upon the Mashonas, is no justification for the wholesale slaughter of the people with Maxim guns. The stealing of their cattle and the free division of their land by semi-civilized savages. Yet Rhodes was rarely criticized for the many deaths he was responsible for, for the thousands of people killed in conflicts that were, as Edwards put it, made for the express benefit of dividend mongers. On the contrary, as Edwards reflected in 1894, those activities had won Rhodes' only praise. By a curious coincidence in human nature, some murderers are hanged, others escape being hanged on the ground of provocation, but there are others who kill so many that either through fear or favour, they are neither hanged nor transported, but are feasted by their compatriots as heroes. Edwards died young in his mid-thirties. In the summer of 1894, he'd been unwell for some time. He sailed to the Caribbean to rest at the home of his brother, but he did not recover. And the anti-caste movement would never recover from the splits that occurred within it after Edwards' death. Like Wedderburn, Edwards was a radical thinker combining searing critiques of imperialism, both as an expression of national conceit and a form of violent capitalist exploitation, with the need for international solidarities among the labouring working classes. He knew these two issues went together and had his ideas 
been taken on more widely. The debates we are having about racism today now surely would be very different. For our final story, we jump ahead three quarters of a century. In 1976, in a suburb of London, a group of workers walked out of the Grunwick Film Processing Laboratory, launching a strike that would last for two years. What began as a small instance of industrial action soon became a battleground involving thousands in confrontations with police and provoking well over 500 arrests, the largest number since the general strike of 1926. What made the strike particularly notable was the composition of the Grunwick workforce, South Asian women who'd migrated to Britain from East Africa during the period of decolonization. What made it even more remarkable was the massive support those strikers received from across the British labor movement, a movement ostensibly rife with racism. So Mac Biswas explores the story. In August 1976, uh, in the London suburb of Williston, a handful of male and female workers walked out of the Grunwick Film Processing Laboratory. Two of their co-workers, both women, had in different ways been forced out of their jobs. Dev Shibhuriya had been fired for working too slowly, and Jayabain Desai was ordered to work overtime. In response, Desai resigned, and mobilized 137 fellow workers to join the strike. These were largely South Asian women who became the face of the movement. George Ward, the factory owner, dismissed all of them, but not before Desai addressed him with a withering statement that would become the strike's defining moment. What you are running here is not a factory, it is a zoo. But in a zoo, there are many types of animals. Some are monkeys who dance on your fingertips. Others are lions who can bite your head off. We are the lions, Mr. Manager. So I encountered Grunvik while working on the project uh, Global Coventry. So this was a collaborative project that looked at post-war immigrant and refugee inflows that remade Coventry's labor and urban geography. A major section of East African Asians displaced during Africanization policies of the late 60s and 70s settled extensively across the Midlands. Grunwick figured in the papers of the Militant Indian Workers Association in Coventry. I was interested to follow the employment trajectories of East African Asians, which was an internally diverse community. Gujarati women hailing largely from middle-class families in East Africa usually did not do wage to work. In Britain, however, they had to, to make ends meet. This was a group of people forced into working class positions by circumstances. Their incorporation into the world of waged work was therefore a new moment. Overall, they represented the broader feminization of workforce happening continuously in mid to late 20th century Britain. Grunwick was the first instance when an industrial strike was led by Asian women. The passivity of female Indian labor, long held to be a stereotype, was decisively dismantled. The Grunwick strike sits at the cusp of major social, political, and legal changes. Between 1960 and 70s, immigration and citizenship laws in the UK had first sought to control, then restrict, Asian, African, and Caribbean migrants seeking to live and work here. 
Many South Asian workers had come in the 50s through a system of work permits to meet Britain's labor needs. This channel of primary migration dried up after the passage of the Commonwealth Acts in 1962 and 68, and a far more depressive Nationality Act in 1971. The 1968 and 1971 Acts were passed in panic, responding directly to the exigencies of Africanization policies in Uganda, Kenya, and Tanzania. Through these laws, Britain hoped to be able to stave off the wave of expellees headed in its direction. But given its legal obligations within the Commonwealth and as signatory to the 1951 Refugee Convention, this was difficult. Migration of peoples from South Asia, Africa, and the Caribbean exemplified Britain's changing relation to its former empire. In search of opportunities in Britain's declining industrial scene, they found at best low wages and long arduous shifts, racially homogenized as black, until the late 1960s, they were generally excluded from the established trade union movement, which aligned itself with the purported national interest and overlooked black and Asian worker struggles. Only in the 1970s did this alignment start to unravel as the common national interest came under increasing scrutiny due to successive political and economic crises that eviscerated Britain's welfare structures. Britain's sterling crisis in 1976 paved the way for major structural adjustments by the International Monetary Fund, a key step in the consolidation of neoliberalism in 1980s Britain. In its wake came a spate of industrial unrest, including the Grunwick strike. The Grunwick Film Processing Laboratory was itself a product of post-war modernity. Founded in 1965 by George Ward, the firm boomed with the advent of amateur color photography. People mailed negatives or undeveloped films to the lab and received finished photographs in return. The firm's primary employee base was largely South Asian women, but there was also a minority of Afro-Caribbean workers. The mass of Indians who worked at Grunwick came to Britain in the late 60s and early 70s from East Africa. Prior to the displacement, most led middle-class lives with women mostly staying at home or working in traditionally female settings, such as teachers and secretaries. By mid to late 1970s, many of these migrants settled in Brent, Harrow and Leicester. Men went for low-paid, white-collar jobs, while women were consigned to the factory doing underpaid labour on the shop floor. At Grunwick, wages were far below national average, about 25 quid for a 35-hour week. Overtime was compulsory and workplace discipline stringent. Management surveyed workers through glass cabins, often threatening dismissal when they disliked what they saw. The owner, George Ward, comported himself with the air of authority that came from having friends in high places. He could boast the support of several Tory politicians and the right-wing think tank National Association for Freedom. All of that suggested that the strike would have little chance of succeeding. Yet, to George Ward's likely astonishment, the support they received was overwhelming. The strikers joined the white-collar union APEX, short for Association of Professional Executive, Clerical and Computer Staffs, demanding the right to union recognition and collective bargaining. Given APEX's penchant for arbitration over solidarity action, 
the Grunwick Strike Committee bypassed its leadership to appeal directly for national and local support. With the help of the Brent Trades Council, they mobilized mass support through tours of the country, eliciting expressions of solidarity from miners in Yorkshire, Scotland and Wales, engineers, steelworkers and print workers, many other trade unionists and left feminist and anti-racist activists flocked to the picket line, with one picket action on 11th July 1977 attracting some 18,000 participants. Over the course of the strike action, more than 550 people were arrested, the highest number recorded since the general strike of 1926. Yet, despite such overwhelming support, huge obstacles remained. Ward refused to enter negotiations, defying even a court of inquiry instituted by the James Callaghan government. Trade union support, initially enthusiastic, was ultimately caught in its own contradictions. On the one hand, it offered essential strike pay and made possible national action. On the other, it bowed to pressure from the Labour government to enforce the social contract on voluntary wage restraint. Jayabin Desai stated ruefully, Support from the TUC is like honey on your elbow. You can see it, you can smell it, but you can't taste it. As a last-ditch attempt to challenge TUC leaders to match actions towards Desai and others staged a hunger strike in November 1977 in front of the headquarters of the Trades Union Congress. Not only did the TUC flatly ignore them, Apex suspended the union membership and stopped strike pay. With that, the strikers bowed to circumstance. On 14th July 1978, they called off the strike. Rather presciently, Desai predicted that the union's doublespeak would come to bite its own tail a prediction that bore sobering fruit when Margaret Thatcher was voted to office two years later. Even as it failed, however, Grunwick set a new benchmark in terms of race, class and gender history. Media coverage focused extensively on the violence of mass pickets, framing it as a law and order problem. Narratives of class and race converged to produce a fear of numbers. Picket line disorder was used to portray a vivid image of national decline justifying punitive police and judicial action. Yet the legacies of the strike lives on. The striking women who led the movement firmly broke the stereotype of the docile Asian worker. Participating in the strike also changed them. Through friendships forged on the picket line and through activism, the returned transformed to their home and workplace. As for the British trade union movement, it acknowledged for the first time the struggles of a non-white immigrant labor force. In the process, it went beyond a narrow understanding of class that aligned with dominant notions of race and nation. Race and class were now understood in relation to each other as animating exclusions that inhered in formations of capital and nation. Grunwick witnessed what the scholar Satanam Virdi has called a process of Asian, black and white working class formation. It was uneven, it was contradictory, but most definitely present amidst the organic crisis of British capitalism that was festering in the 1970s. White anti-racist groups, along with Jewish, Irish, Catholic, Indian and Caribbean activists, were together able to construct broader alliances such as the Anti-Nazi League, immensely useful in countering the spread of the far-right National Front over the 1970s.
And now joining me through the miracle of Zoom are Ryan Hanley, Caroline Bressy, and Somak Biswas. Thanks so much for taking the time. So you've taken us through these three neglected moments, case studies, and I wondered if you wanted to sort of talk us through what we've just heard and why you chose the particular stories that you did. Well, I think one of the things we wanted to think about in a in a form of disruption were moments of solidarity, which which seem to challenge the notion that is somewhat presented at the moment that that solidarities aren't possible. They're sort of inconceivable in many ways across sort of complex lines of, of ethnicity. So although in some ways, I don't know if we thought about it in this way at the time, but in some ways we've all highlighted moments of sort of failures or campaigns that didn't succeed. Wedderburn's narratives don't succeed. There isn't revolution in the in the in the Caribbean and Brunswick doesn't succeed in some ways and and Edwards dies young and and the anti-caste movement doesn't succeed in that sense but I think that highlights something about what we think about as success I think they're also really interesting moments of success in all of that but they also point to to different ways of thinking about solidarities and and the possibilities and and perhaps hopefulness of that but they're also very different times I don't know Ryan what you think if if Wedderburn was really hopeful given that he was you know living in a in a world where enslavement and so on was still so entrenched yeah I think well, I, I suppose obviously Wedderburn is is writing in a world that's partly shaped by the Haitian Revolution uh, as much as it is by the by the French Revolution. Certainly, in his kind of intellectual circles, and you know, in the world that he grew up in and came to kind of political maturity in. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, all of these stories are sort of marked by a kind of sad ending, <laughs> uh, as it were. But that's only, I suppose, possible because of the tremendous kind of optimism that, that you know that they kind of construct between them is it there are moments in fact I, I suppose there's an argument that British working class history is is marked as much by these moments of optimism and solidarity across these complex kind of eth- ethnic identities as much as it is by uh, at least as much as it is by um, ideas of kind of exclusionary narrative ethnic ethnic identities and what constructs you know the 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 British working class whatever whatever that means um so yeah in a way I suppose the 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 sad ending is only possible because of the because of the successes that are perhaps neglected in the history of kind of working class identity formation I mean I don't don't know if that's an oversimplification so I'm thinking about the you know the very complex kind of story that you um, told in your your introduction do do you see this as a as a cause for optimism or or is it sort of you know a reason to to be pessimistic about working class history no no Ryan I think sort of yeah this is optimism in spite of failure right yeah Hmm. Uh, yeah no I think sort of what all of our talks really uh, pegged very well is a broader attention to almost uh, this sort of wider imperial labor mobility, right? That formed the sort of backdrop for all these kind of struggles to happen. So clearly these characters were 
caught in far more global processes than they could actually battle, right? Even in small terms. So yeah. So I think yeah, it's ultimately the yeah sort of the inevitably sort of the process winning out against the individual rebellions of all these characters. Yeah, and I think there's something to learn from that. Yeah. And I think when I was doing my work on on Edwards, I was I was surprised by how many people would come to hear him speak, you know, sort of thousands and, and thousands. And, and there is, you know, the story of the, the floor giving way and, and at one of the halls where he's speaking as people wait in the lo lobby because they've been queuing for so long and they cram into the lobby and, and the hall gives way. Um, and small, you don't often get a sense of who's going to hear him speak. But on that occasion, you do get this list of people that's injured and you do get the sense of the mixture that the audience contains young women who, are, you know, they're all sorts of sort of different kinds of work that's that's going on. So also sort of just thinking of the space of the lecture hall as, you know, the way Edwards and, and others, I think that probably refers to, to Wedderburn in some way as well, as the sort of intellectual life of the working class, the sense of, of people trying to think through problems and listening to a great you know, array of stuff that Edwards, for example, spoke about all sorts of things. And, and that's, that's optimistic and that that is bound to come with moments of agreement and disagreement and, and it will ebb and flow. Um, but I guess the fact that that story seems to have fallen out of the history of, of working class. Um, that that it's you know that it has these complexities. It has moments when it tries to think them through and face them and and so on. That does seem to have, have fallen away a bit. Um, but yeah, there is there is there was just in the, so many people coming to hear Edward speak a sort of sense of you know he wasn't on his own <laughs> shouting <laughs> to empty walls you know there was there was a kind of momentum and people who were who were interested to to hear what he had to say yeah i i i feel like there's a particular sort or a particular like character of robustness in working class political debate that can sometimes give the impression of more profound divides than might actually be the case like that the, the, the entire spirit of Wedderburn's uh, milieu is about kind of you know people yelling at each other in crowded pubs and you know um, and making kind of outrageous sort of statements to get a rise out of people and to get people to it to um, to in engage but I mean that belies I suppose a kind of expectation of solidarity and mutual respect within I suppose the culture or certainly for my period anyway within the kind of culture of working class radicalism or working class political engagement that yeah maybe has helped to service a narrative of you know the divided left or you know the identitarian working class you know which I, I think does does exist I think you know it's it's, it's more it, things could be more than one thing but there's definitely that kind of expectation of a, of a, a give and take in yeah working class kind of politics for this for this period that you know we, we need to understand quite carefully I think without you know without uh, um, playing into that narrative of a of a very fractious or fractured movement. I think it's one of the things that I've been noticing that's come out in some of the other conversations that that we've been having and putting the podcast together but the the fact that 
you see these kind of multiple interlaced identities and affiliations coexisting, you know, if not harmoniously, at least it's possible to be several things at once and to hold divergent opinions without having this kind of schematic kind of divided and uh, a landscape that where communication isn't isn't possible and that that sense of the of nuance has maybe been lost from much of our understanding of the quote ordinary British working class yeah I mean certainly in the sense of the sort of the, the 19th century work or, or the late 19th century work that I've looked at around anti-caste was also thinking about that as something that people read and how people thought about reading and how people did activism. But yes, the sort of the, the spaces that are important. So, you know, that anti-caste is delivered to public libraries, but also to cafes and to schools and so on. Um, and as as Ryan was saying, you get a sense of, of a sort of, of people discussing and debating, um, people sort of sending in letters with different kinds of views. Some of those views occasionally are coming from people who are deeply racist and saying, this is wrong. You know, you've got, you've got it wrong. You don't understand the Southern United States, actually, or whatever it might be. But I think, yeah, there's definitely the sort of the sense that this is a this is also something that working people are committed to, to take your time to go to the lecture hall, to spend your penny on a newspaper or on a ticket to go and hear someone speak is also part of your engagement in a community that's more than you. And I get thinking about other people's experiences, thinking about where you go to think through what's happening to you and how to better the position not only for yourself but for a community and as some sort of highlighted a sense that people are aware of where they fit into much broader sort of international connections of labour that they are treated in some way similarly to people in other parts of the world but also aware that there are differences and that they you know think trying to think through how you hold those together in a in a more international sense of of sort of solidarities is part of the work that they're trying to do. Yeah, and I, I think that that question of complexity and, you know, the loss of, uh, of nuance sometimes in, I suppose, popular understandings of working class history. I mean, I wonder if that's a function of historiography, you know, and our obsession with representativeness and sort of the usefulness of case studies in representing large structural models and you know what I find particularly when researching black working class intellectuals from you know late 18th early 19th century people like Wedderburn is that they don't really they they constantly frustrate my desire to kind of use them to explain broader historical processes because they don't act as they should according to those <laughs> um, and I, I guess that kind of desire for like the, the perfect representative of this diverse working class as is often a label you know that's often applied to Wedderburn that label yeah I suppose that comes out of you know a, a history of, of a lack of representation within the archive and a lack of kind of nuance in the way that yeah, people of colour in working class movements are kind of represented by others at the time contemporaneously. 
but yeah, it does make the historian's job a bit harder, <laughs> which is, but I, I think that's, that's a good thing. I think that that kind of makes, makes them, if anything, more historically kind of instructive because it kind of raises the question of the limitations of structural models by focusing on, on either sort of moments like Grumwick or kind of individuals like um, Edwards or, or, or Wedderburn. Yeah, so I, I, I quite like this kind of case study approach because it, partly because of the frustration it engenders for me, you know, when I'm trying to kind of make the case for the broader value of these individuals, it's, it's partly because they don't fit the story. And I quite, I quite like that about them. Yeah, no, no, I think I agree with both Caroline and Ryan. I think the British sort of working class is, is far more internationally aware than we often give credit for. And yeah, uh, and, and sort of, yeah, I mean, yeah, Edwards was extremely gifted in that. And they did sort of publish prolifically journals, right? And which was read eagerly, circulated widely, right? Across continents almost. And uh, something that really comes to mind is often that the sort of leaders from colonial nationalist movements did visit and campaign with uh, the British working class kind of establishments, right? So when Gandhi came to visit, he spent a long time campaigning uh, with sort of Lancashire kind of male workers, right? Showing, and there was a certain great appeal. He was hugely popular, right? So, and clearly there was a case of them getting through to the ordinary working class. And I think, yeah, so this is, this is something that's often lost, the nuance that, you know, the working class itself is quite internally uh, diverse. There are tensions of different kinds working on them. At the same time, they're also able to form and interlocute between themselves, yeah, it's, it's something that we need to uh, rehash, probably. I mean, do you think that still is this interesting thinking about that moment as well, much later in the 20th century as case study, as you liked? And I wonder, do you think looking at those more contemporary archives, are those problems around absence still there? Or is the sort of the memory around Grunwick perhaps different in the sense that it sort of holds itself up as this moment of great kind of multi-ethnic solidarity that perhaps then ignores the complexities that you that you highlight you know going around it that that perhaps some of that solidarity falls away or it doesn't perhaps take seriously enough the the politics of racism that are involved in that women's strike in order to sort of fully support them all the way through their campaign? Both, I think. I think it's not taken seriously enough. So I think sort of some of the stuff that you did, for instance, the close reading you did with, with E.P. Thompson's work, for instance, right? There are these materials, but they often get underread, right? In writing those histories. So I think, yeah, so I guess now we are able to like, reintegrate those histories and see this is part of a larger patchwork. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. And the other thing I was thinking was also how crucial, we need to inflect uh, histories of class with race, right? Which is this podcast is about that, how imperial whiteness sort of almost defined for a whole generation what British working class would be and, and whose sort of effects remained even in decolonizing Britain, particularly the 60s through 70s kind of decades, right? And, yeah, and only post 70s sort of was the whole black working class movement uh, making itself very, very strongly felt in Britain. Yeah, so I think, yeah, there are interesting connections that could be made. Uh, yeah, but it will take longer to dwell on that. I think um, 
I mean, what someone's just said is addressing this, but this question of how you would like to see working class history rethought or reimagined so as to kind of draw out some more of that um, complexity, that nuance and that kind of interpenetration of race, class, empire. Yeah, that's a that's a big question, isn't it? <laughs> that's the is the question, isn't it? You know, how do we kind of recast it? I, I suppose you know, we'll, um, I, I think that many people working on on this in this field will will do this already. But just to uh, to take as a starting point the idea that the working class is you know quote unquote a diverse group of people that you know it's not something that is inherently or exclusively white. And in fact, you know, I, I think. There's a, a lot of work, you know, in the early 2000s that went into talking about how whiteness was kind of constructed in the American working class. Um, but we've never really undergone that type of kind of reckoning with the intellectual cultural work of whiteness in class formation in, in a British context or not, not enough yet. I don't think it's not something that's kind of seen as central in the same way it would be in the United States for a whole raft of historical reasons well I mean that I'm sort of speaking it quite unguardedly there I, I, I don't know people with uh, you know more knowledge of 20th century and 19th 20th century history would disagree with that that you know whiteness is is pre- present in the British historiography of uh, um, working class identity I mean I think it's it's certainly there but it's sort of it's assumed in so many ways I I mean I think in in the sort of 19th century stuff certainly I mean I think and I'm talking about the historiography here but sort of thinking through you know there are moments when it's it's clearly more fractious or thinking about Jewish working class and how that fits into whiteness or an Irish Catholic Mm. working class and and there are clearly moments when prejudices against those communities rupture you know a kind of seamless idea of of sort of evolution of consciousness to unionization to the 20th century kind of thing Um, but I think it is interesting to think about how that gets framed in a British context and the moments of that perhaps being a geographer I would say that scale is important in thinking about about geographies but um I think you know some of the work looking at say the making of of white Australia and Mm -hmm. how that comes to be sort of points quite importantly to what sort of people's experiences at a at a kind of local level um but then also how those ideas are connecting to things that are happening in the United States or other parts of empire and so yeah do you think there's a sort of a way of of reflecting back but I guess what I'm interested and I think what we also wanted to think through was why does anti-racism not become a key part of of sort of labor politics I think the three moments that we've chosen were also ways of illustrating that it could have been so there are moments of the movement where people are, are writing about these issues, are very clearly linking them to issues of class and working class experience rather than just a kind of racialized experience, but they don't get taken up by the broader 
labour movement and I guess that's the sort of as a group we've talked about this before the kind of tragedy of the potential a kind of of the movement that if those things had become embedded it, it might have been it might have gone gone differently so I think there is something to think about in the the British context as to when when do those moments of possibility become weakest and I and I think they it would be interesting to think through what the politics of whiteness at those moments are mm. as well so my sense in in the 19th century it's something I'd like to do more about is that sort of after the first world war sort of emerging to the, the, the sort of final years of the First World War is, is when the colour line really starts to become hard, a kind of hard line in Britain. You know, it's, it's operated in differently, clearly in empire in different ways, but in, in Britain that becomes hard and it becomes, you know, it's clearly issues like equal opportunities are there because Edwards refers to them. He has them in, in mind you know, in the 1890s, but, you know, that becomes when the League of Coloured Peoples is formed in the 1930s, you know, unequal access to work because of the colour bar is one of the things that they are most regularly concerned about um, at all levels, both at professional levels, you know, for example, medicine is something they reflect on um, often. But that is anecdotally also something, for example, that affects Jewish people you know that there are informal bars to Jewish people working in in medicine you sometimes see so it's it's there's still complexity in the politics of whiteness I, I think in certainly in the early 20th century and and perhaps much later as well yes uh no I think I think yeah Caroline I mean I agree with everything you said yeah and I think also the the it I think it also shows shows how whiteness itself was like you know majorly constructed at least within the white working class particularly in the early 20th century and I'm glad you actually brought the whole connection to Australia because there's this whole white settler colony it became a site for transporting white labor and and so this is imperial labor mobility that's happening through this massive emigration schemes sponsored by the British state that literally like, you know, is transferring what the British state sees excess stock. And this often includes a lot of working class men and women who see the empire as this fortified field to go and work. And I think, and that's quite crucial to see how whiteness also consolidates in these regions, but also within, within Britain. And the World War One is also quite important because sort of that's the first time when the, colon the colonies particularly the Asian and African colonies are actually participating in, in the war, in the British war effort. And one of the sort of effects was that demobilized Caribbean, uh, West Indian and South Asian soldiers would often return to Britain to join Britain's industrial scene and would find the racism and color bar on the shop front that often became a sort of precipitating point for their own activisms. So yeah, so I think this is interesting kind of moves happening around the world war and throughout the 20th century uh, that often matches the different points of crises in global capitalism. And often it sort of almost exaggerates race class conflict by creating new wants. It feels like increasingly there's a kind of consensus that just like endogenous factors are alone insufficient to explain 
working class social history, British working class social history, or, you know, that the British working class is itself kind of a product, I guess, for all three of us, we're interested in empire and its afterlives, but also it's just about, I I think more broadly about Britain's kind of connectedness with the rest of the world and its shifting kind of position within a sort of global order. So I don't know if that's like, we could call that a sort of, turn but it feels like in most most historiography that's being produced at the moment we're sort of seeking for ways in which kind of working class both reach outwards to empire to explain their own situation but also how the empire obviously you know uh, comes home in ways that I think affect particularly around migration you know in ways that I think kind of are, are more transformative to working class communities than they might be for kind of sort of elite or kind of that sort of middle class communities you know I don't know I mean perhaps again perhaps that's that's an oversimplification of the way that migration works in throughout in Britain throughout history but it seems to me that like the working class is constructed by Britain's connections to the rest of the world in a very unique kind of way and with a with a very unique kind of set of outcomes and influences yeah I think I mean, I think it's so interesting in terms of sort of mapping a, a, a trajectory for a different sort of historiography, a different sort of set of narratives around this. I'm a little conscious of time and wondered if we wanted to circle back in a way to a sort of kind of summary question, which is what we gain from complicating history in in this way history writing history narratives in this way I mean it's very common sort of common academic move to say you know you think it's one way it's actually more complicated which is I mean I think intellectually is completely important and legitimate we gain from as historians but we also gain presumably as as citizens as political beings as human beings in the current landscape. So I suppose this is asking you to sort of close with some reflections on, you know, why this particular history now, how does it speak to the needs of this particularly fraught moment? Well, I've been struck, I've sort of seen recently a couple of times and um, recently references to the Welsh writer and thinker Raymond Williams and his contention that um, to be radical is to make hope possible rather than despair convincing. And I think there is in all of the things we've looked at a a thinking about hope. Um, And and for those of us interested in in politics of solidarity and not division, (laughs) that that looking for moments of hope and um, thinking through how they are, how people come together, but also perhaps how they are driven apart is, is important for thinking about the possibilities for the moment in, in, in which we are in. Um, but I think, yeah, trying, trying to find hope <laughs> in times that sometimes do not feel very hopeful um, is, is important. Yeah, I mean, historians, you know, it's been said many times before, you know, historians' contribution to our current, you know, 
febrile kind of political discourse sometimes is actually is is to introduce complexity and nuance and to sort of to challenge certain types of uh, yeah discourse that seem to like seem to offer simple answers to complex problems in ways that can be false and sometimes quite dangerous and I think that uh, um, oversimplified kind of narratives around history are constantly being kind of weaponized in this sort of culture war that we find ourselves in at the moment. I suppose it yeah I, I think studying kind of the histories of you know individuals and movements like this where hope is possible and you know where there, there were moments where these these a better future was really envisioned and optimism you know came through is a, is a fantastic kind of contribution to those debates in tandem with that introduction of kind of complexity, which helps us to, I suppose, avoid the temptation of retreating into this slightly patronising heroism narrative that sometimes surrounds broad market, I suppose, <laughs> interventions on, on working class history. So it's, it's possible to kind, of, to kind of balance taking working class agency basically seriously for for better and worse, but also you know to to but to see that alongside uh, moments where that agency um, produced something really special, um, and that you know those th- these things kind of persist across time and resurface in in vastly different historical contexts is I think very encouraging for what we could see in the future and for the sort of optimistic way we could approach politics today. I just wanted to say, uh, yeah, very briefly that, I mean, I think as historians, we're often caught between uh, trying to be activists and academics, right? And then sort of, yeah, I mean, I think it's good not to romanticize too much, but uh, I mean, if anything, today's particular political moment shows how even more complex uh, formulations of race and class has become. What we did believe even two decades ago does not hold now. Uh, This has happened very seriously with different kinds of capital accumulation, even in racial minorities. And in a way that has, I think, complicated the debate as well. My own sort of drive would be to pay more closer attention to non-respectable forms of labor. So particularly like, for instance, sex work happening, right? And also, with Eastern European migration, I think the race question is also complicated quite significantly. And there is a sort of extenuating factor about how certain strands of new Commonwealth immigrants see them as. I think all these sort of complicate the mechanics, but I think there is still hope, as both Ryan and Caroline said, to forge a larger solidarity against uh, capitalist processes that try to oppress. Many thanks to Ryan Hanley, Caroline Bressy and Somek Biswas for making this episode happen, and to Bert Caesar for reading the archival extracts. You can find out more about them and their work on the episode page for this podcast. Thanks, too, to the Raphael Samuel History Center and the British Academy, who provided financial support for the series of episodes on new labor histories. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening.